Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak your word, that we would hear your word, that it would bear fruit in our lives, all to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Don't be seated. Don't be seated. Don't be seated. Keep standing. Keep standing. We're going to say just this last part of the creed together. Uh, If you want to follow along, it's the same words in your bulletin, but we're starting at the end. Say this with me. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. As we continue our series on the Nicene Creed, I want the content of what we're talking about to be fresh in our minds. We believe in the church. We believe in one God. We said that earlier in the creed. And we believe in one church. The church is, that is, we are, as the Bible describes us, the people of God, the body of Christ the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, the bride of Christ, the army of God, and actually many other things. This is who we, the church, this is who we are. The church is not where we go, but it's who we are. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins is the entrance into the church. Remember, that's a quote from Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, 38. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins is the entrance into the people of God, into the church. And then at the other extreme of our life in faith, we affirm in this part of the creed the resurrection of the dead. I just want to point out this is not, this line, the resurrection of the dead, is not about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We've already affirmed that earlier in the creed. Remember we say earlier in the creed, He suffered and was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. So we certainly affirm that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, but that's not what we mean here at the end of the creed. When we say here that we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, we're talking about the Bible's teaching that we will be raised from the dead. We will rise again. Those who are dead now in the Lord have not experienced that yet. There will come a day when those who are part of Jesus' church will be raised from the dead to new and physical and eternal life with God. We are joined to this body of Christ, to this church, in faith and baptism, and we look to the end when we who are in Christ will be raised bodily everlasting life. I mean, that's our story. That's where we fit in between the new life in baptism and faith and the new life in eternity. And in the middle, in that place, we are the church. We believe in the church, which we enter in baptism and is heading towards the resurrection and eternal life. And here we are in the middle. We believe in the church. And so this morning, we're going to look together at what we affirm about the church in the creed. The one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. 
This church that we are joined to and become part of in faith and baptism, and then because of our incorporation in God's people, will one day experience the resurrection from the dead and the life of the world to come. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. These are known as the four marks of the church. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And so we're going to look at each in turn. So first, one. We believe in one God. We said at the beginning, we believe in one Lord. And now we affirm that we believe in one church. How many churches are there in Loganville? Well, in one way, of course, there's a bunch, and that's fine. But as I already saw someone hold up a finger, more accurately, there are a number of congregations in Loganville, but truly only one church. There may be lots of small groups. Essentially, every congregation is just a small group within the worldwide church. There may be a bunch of congregations, small groups, but there is only one church. Now, I'm not arguing semantics. It doesn't bother me at all when people say there are a lot of churches in Georgia. That doesn't bother me at all. But what we do need to understand is that all congregations who are faithfully Christian are a part of the one church. And so this oneness is, in, this is inherently corporate. We are not just our own church over here and you're your church over there, but we together make up the one church because there is only one it's corporate we're all as christians in this together and because there is only one we each need to be faithfully members of it it is unreasonable to say that i am a part of the one church if i'm not a part of any congregation I said this uh, two weeks ago, that by far the single most common thing I hear, whether in my office or in the community, is some version of, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. And I will tell you that it is unreasonable and in fact unbiblical to think that we are a part of the one church if we are not faithfully a part of any church, any congregation. To be faithfully a part of the one church, we need to be faithfully a part of its local expression, a local congregation. Today in our service, we will have uh, some new members commit to being a part of this specific congregation, this specific part of the one church, committing to live out their lives in Christ as faithful members of this congregation. We believe in one church, and we attach ourselves and commit ourselves to one local expression of it. And that oneness that's supposed to characterize the church also points to an essential unity that we're supposed to experience in the church. We should and experience, see and experience unity as we're together. Now, like any family, we can disagree and even get mad at times. But the church should be marked by unity and oneness together. The church as a whole and each individual expression of it, each individual local congregation should be marked by unity. 
But here's the thing that I have experienced as a pastor. We all tend to see someone else as the one responsible for any lack of unity. If they just did what I wanted, this would be fine. If they just saw things the right way, and we can say this about another congregation, if they or that individual or that congregation saw things the right way, this would be better. I have never in my life heard someone say, goodness, I'm the problem. I'm the reason we don't have unity. I'm going to change. At least not quite in that way. But honestly, here's one way for each of us to know if we're really pursuing unity, becoming one together in the church. Here's the best way I know to identify if we're really pursuing this personally. Does it hurt? Seriously, does it hurt? I'm talking about the kind of hurt that comes from personally and intentionally and humbly giving up of yourself and your desires for the sake of another person and for the sake of unity of the church. Even if the other person or the congregate, even if someone else does not respond well, are we giving up of ourselves to the point that it hurts in order to pursue unity? Because we're all happy with unity if everybody does it our way. But are we willing to sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of the unity of the church? And that will hurt. If we're not doing that, then we're not being one and personally pursuing unity. It is going to hurt to give up our rights, to defer to others, to give up of our preferences for the sake of unity. But that's what it means to be the church. Now, here's a self-diagnostic for you. Don't raise your hand. If in hearing that, if your mind went immediately to someone else who needs to hear that, then it is probably you who needs to hear it. We are called to be one. And yes, committing to unity will hurt sometimes. But as Romans 8, 17 says, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We believe in one church. Second, holy. We believe in one holy church. Holy means to be set apart, to be pure, unpolluted, completely devoted to God. That should mark the church. That's what we are called to be. And in Christ, that's what Jesus makes us, makes us holy. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that is, make us holy, that he might sanctify, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. Jesus makes us holy through his death and resurrection for us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, dwells in us and among us, and empowers us to live holy lives. And holiness, 
purity needs to mark us as the church. Now, we will not live that perfectly, but Christian, Christian lives should always be marked by this intentional and committed and honestly hard work of growth in Christ-likeness, growth in holiness. In older versions of our prayer book, there was an invitation to come to communion like this. Ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbor, neighbors and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways. If that's you, draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament to your comfort. We who intend to lead a new life, a holy life, a life marked by the kingdom love of Jesus, this is holiness in action, living a holy and pure life. Not perfect, I assure you, none of you will ever be perfect. None of us, I'll include myself. But living a pure and holy and continually growing life in Christ-likeness should mark each of us individually and us corporately as the church. We are called to be holy. And there's a tension here. There's a tension in being called to be holy and to live holy and pure lives in the midst of a fallen world. In the midst of a world that doesn't show or even value holiness. How separate must we be? How engaged must we be? I hear this, for example, I've heard this quite a few times from parents who are able to make these decisions. Um, but parents trying to decide if they want their kids in public school or a private Christian school. What's the balance between living holy lives, which requires a form of separation, and missional lives, which requires presence and engagement? Holiness must mark the people of God, and that holiness should be contagious. You can't be contagious if you're separated off from the world. But we also have to be careful that we make sure that the transforming influence goes one way and not the other. As we engage with the world, we need to make sure that our purity and holiness is shared with the world, not the contagion the other way. So we need to be careful, and we need to handle that tension appropriately. Now I remember a teenage boy, an underage boy, explaining to me that it was good for him to go to parties with underage drinking because we need to have Christians there. <laughs> that is not what I mean. That is not the way to be holy. But sometimes the tension is going to be handled differently by different people. Some of us may find it best to go to public school while others need a private Christian school. I know some will participate in Halloween as a Christian outreach, which I highly recommend. But I also know that others are so troubled by that holiday that they just avoid it completely. I know of one Christian ministry that is doing amazing work that focuses exclusively on men and women in the adult film industry going to their events and their conventions, sharing the gospel with men and women in that world. I'll be honest, that is not one I'm going to be a part of. 
but there's a sense of how do we be holy while missional? How do we manage that tension between holiness, which is essential, and mission into the world? And that is going to look different sometimes for different people. But all of us are called to be holy in all things. Third, Catholic. One holy Catholic church. Now, Catholic here does not mean Roman Catholic. I'm not disparaging the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just pointing out clearly that that is not what we are talking about. Our English word, Catholic, actually comes from the Greek word here in the creed. Catholicos, Catholic. Which means general or universal. That's what it means. That's what it was, was meant when, it was, when the creed was written. We are a part of the universal church. Now this is similar to the unity when we say of the one church already mentioned, but Catholic emphasizes perhaps a little bit less unity and more the all-over, universal, global element of the church, actually much of which is represented here in this room. We here at Holy Cross are a part of the Catholic, global, universal church, and that includes things like Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. It includes uh, we are Catholic in that sense. But it also is made up of people that look and sound like me and people that don't. We affirm that we are a part of the universal, global church. We see this here at Holy Cross with the number of nationalities represented in this room and in this congregation. We see it in our past here at Holy Cross when the Anglican Church of Bolivia was critical to our development and support. We see this universal global church in things like GAFCON. GAFCON is a worldwide movement of, within the Anglican Church um, from those around the world standing firm on the truth of the gospel within our tradition. We are a part of something so much bigger than ourselves just in our little tiny corner of the world. We are a part of the universal global Catholic one holy Catholic church. And lastly, apostolic. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. We are committed to the teachings of the apostles. This is non-negotiable. We trust in the writings of the Old and New Testaments and are committed to upholding them. We are, in that way, firmly apostolic. Acts 2.42 describes the church in this way. It says that the church uh, and the Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, among a few other things. That was core, bedrock, the apostles' teaching, Old and New Testaments. That's what we are affirming. We are continuing the apostles' teaching handed down to us. There's also a sense that we are apostolic in that the apostles ordained people who ordained people who ordained people who ordained people who ordained me. We're apostolic in that way, but the primary thing that we affirm is that we are apostolic in that we are holding on to and continuing the apostles' teaching. Just as a fun side note that actually connects fairly well here, do you know why bishops wear purple? This will be fun. It's a reminder 
when the bishops wear purple, it is a reminder that we are apostolic, that we are in the line of the apostles and that we keep the apostles' teaching, and here's why. On Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles and they start speaking in tongues, the onlookers look at them and they say, they're drunk. And Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, stands up there and says, they're not drunk, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Amethyst, the stone that bishops will usually wear in their ring or on their cross, amethyst, the bishop's stone, is the color of wine, that dark red, and it is, the, the word amethyst means not drunk. Amethyst ah. Methuo, not drunk. Amethyst. And so, quite literally, bishops wear purple as a reminder that they are not drunk but filled with the Holy Spirit. They are following the line of the apostles and teaching and upholding what the apostles taught. This is also, as a fun side note, related to why they wear mitres, the pointy hat. The mitre is, is shaped like a tongue of fire that descended on the apostles. Again, reminding us that they are and we are apostolic, following in the line of the apostles. We are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And with that, we come to the end of the Nicene Creed. And as we come to know what it is that we are affirming, which we've been learning together over the past six weeks, as we do that, the goal is that our hearts and minds would be elevated in worship. As we recite together this pledge of allegiance of faith, as we affirm the apostles' teaching, which are in so many ways quoted in the creed, we are united together in this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And the creed ends, quite fittingly, with Amen. Ultimately, the creed is directed toward God and speaking to Him in prayer. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pledge our faith and allegiance to Him, the Trinity. We direct our hearts and minds to Him and we speak to Him using so many of the words that He has spoken to us. So as we reaffirm our faith each week using the words of the Nicene Creed, may we be a people who constantly turn our hearts to Jesus in worship. May we be those who know the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And may we together be a congregation that is committed to being a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Amen.